Welcome to the Cool Tools Show. I'm Mark Frauenfelder, Editor-in-Chief of Cool Tools, a website of tool recommendations written by our readers. You can find us at cool-tools.org. I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin Kelly, founder of Cool Tools. Hey, Kevin. Hey, it's great to be here. In each episode of the Cool Tools Show, Kevin and I talk to a guest about some of his or her favorite uncommon and uncommonly good tools they think others should know about. Our guest this week is Carol Tilly. I, I always, I, she's a returning guest. I also highly recommend Carol's Twitter feed. I, I, I'm like a huge fan of it. I'm always excited to see a new tweet. Carol is a comics historian and associate professor of information science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's a lifelong nerd. She's a former librarian. Her research is so cool. Here's what it is. It's exploring how young people did cool things with and through comics during the mid-20th century. I cannot think of anything better than that. How are you doing, Carol? (laughs) I'm great. And thank you, Mark. Hi, Kevin. It's great to be here. Yes, it's wonderful to have you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, so so I I mean, I don't think we're going to talk about comics this time, but uh, that's fine. We'll have another opportunity too. Um, uh, we will, though, start talking about a birding app that you like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so like uh, several hundred thousand people, uh, I downloaded the Merlin app once the pandemic lockdown started last year. And the Merlin app is uh, a product from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Uh, and mm-hmm. they keep integrating really uh, cool new stuff, including uh, identify uh, this bird by by the sound, by the song. Uh, but since I have been working from home and sort of staring out the big window in front of my desk, uh, I've been amazed at all of the birds that seem to exist in this little corner of the yard that I don't see elsewhere, uh, you know, looking out from my house. And mm-hmm. the Merlin app has just been so extraordinarily helpful for me to to figure out what some of these small birds are that after a while, start to look alike. Um, yeah. yeah, like so, just so, little yeah. brown birds. Yes. <laughs> so so to, to explain, that it's an app for your phone that you yes. can use to listen to the bird singing or making noises, and it will identify the bird just from that sound. It, yes. So you can you can use the, the sound identification, but it also has a sort of five-question sort of description tool that you can use. So you can put in three colors and the size and where you've seen it. uh, And it knows your location and it knows what birds should or shouldn't be here uh, this particular uh, day and time. And it gives you a list of, of what the possibilities are. So you may still have to do a little bit of work, but it certainly is helpful in narrowing uh, down the possibilities. So when you're using it, um, do you start with the, that kind of visual triage, and or do, or do you, um, in actual practice, do you first just listen to the sound as it uh, is beyond sight, or how how do you actually wind up using it? Yeah, so I probably use it for uh, with the visual identification maybe two thirds of the time, uh, and the sound the rest. Uh, the sound is really helpful. Uh, when I'm lucky enough to get out of my office and I'm taking a walk somewhere and maybe I can't see uh, a particular bird, but I can hear it. 
so it's, I mean, I think it's really upped my, my identification skills. Like I can do more than Cardinals and Robins uh, <laughs> mm. and, and uh, doves now. So uh, that's mm -hmm. a good thing for me. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't right now do like, if you were able to use your camera, it can it identify visually from the picture. Uh, not that I have discovered that may be something that they add eventually. I suspect in, until then, maybe Google lens is a, a good fill in for that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And is it free? It is free. Uh, and they have packs that uh, you can install data packs. You can install for pretty much any location in the world. Right. So the data packs are more, much more regionally located they yes. start more at the continent level when they work down to regions. So like if you were to travel to Australia, you'd probably want to load the Australia pack. Absolutely. So right now I primarily use the, the Midwest pack. Uh, mm -hmm. but I know I'll be traveling, um, by car to the Southwest U S next month. And so I'll download that pack, uh, to, to keep me, uh, up to date there as well. And you could download more than one pack, but just that it takes up a lot of room. So yes. that's the, the, it's a yes. library basically. Yeah. So I think that if you want the whole Northwest, um, or pardon me, the whole North America pack, it's something a little over a gig. Um, which for some people, you know, that's not much on their phones, but for me, it, it is. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It's I um I use the, the the song identification, and it's simply amazing because you uh, it will identify even things that are fairly what I would thought would be faint. I mean, I could yes. hear them, but I wouldn't thought that they it could hear it. But here's here's an interesting way that it worked. I, I found out about this later on. The huge innovation in the app was that they take the sound and they turn it into a visual spectrograph. And yes. they use they use AI to to look at the picture of that sound wave to identify it. I thought that was brilliant. I, I agree. You know, I'm uh, skeptical, perhaps, of some AI applications, but uh, I this is one that I can fully support. <laughs> <laughs> great so tell us about your second uh choice oh wow well like a, a lot of us uh, i'm a coffee drinker and i had relied on um a, a blade grinder an electric blade grinder for the last 25 years or so but mm -hmm. uh last just about a year ago my wife bought uh, a german-made zazen house coffee mill for us uh, and it's a, it's got a burr grinder. It's, you know, I sit with it. I grind the coffee by hand. I hold the coffee mill between my knees. Uh, and it has made, you know, what was already good coffee, just even more fragrant uh, and, and uh, taste, uh, tasteful. Uh, so it's been, I, I couldn't, I, I had a hard time believing uh, that the difference in the grinder uh, could really be that profound. And is the fact that it's a hand, this is a hand powered mill. Is, is that important? Or if, if you had a, just a power, uh, you know, if, if I had a, if I had a, an electric burr grinder, I think it, it would be just as good. I think one of the things that I like about um, the fact that this is hand powered is that if we lose 
electricity. Um, I can still make coffee uh, because we use a French press and I've got a gas stove. So we're still in business. That's cool. Okay. So it's <laughs> so, coffee so the, for the apocalypse. All yes. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and so what kind of coffee do you make with it? Like drip coffee or pour over or? Uh, almost always French press, occasionally mm-hmm. uh, uh, pour over, but um, we are dark roast fans and mm-hmm. uh, I've started, I buy some coffee locally uh, that's roasted locally, but sort of my everyday uh, coffee is from Peace Coffee in Minneapolis, St. Paul. I like several of their roasts and they sell it in five pound bags. So that's it, it's a nice way of ensuring that there's always coffee in the house. Yeah, definitely. And did you say it's Pete's Coffee? Or? Uh, no, Peace. Uh, oh, Peace. Okay. Yes. Oh, okay. Peace Coffee. Um, is this a, uh, a roast? How, how did you become acquainted with this particular roaster? Oh, just exploration. Um, mm-hmm. I was I was looking for someone new to try, and mm-hmm. I wanted a coffee roaster that also had some uh, social justice, socially conscious values, and um, they do a lot of uh, fair trade work. They've been around for twenty five plus years. Uh, they are uh, headed by a, a woman, and all of those things together. Uh, are things I want to support. So yeah, sounds like a great choice. I will check that out. We'll put a link right. in the show notes to Peace Coffee. Great. They obviously do mail order or online. Yes. Order. <laughs> yes. No, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't drive to St. Paul. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Although yeah. I might, you know, if I needed to. <laughs> yeah. If you need that coffee, you, you're, I, I hear <laughs> you. I'll drive a long way to get some coffee. Yes. Um, okay. So uh, let's see. We have another. Uh, pick and why don't you tell us what it is? Uh, so I, I mentioned, you know, that I, I look out over my backyard um, and get to watch the birds. And part of the reason that our yard is so full of birds is because it is overgrown. Uh, we've got a, a half acre lot in town that's mm-hmm. heavily wooded uh, and it's full of volunteer and invasive trees. Uh, so uh, we purchased this amazing thing called the extractigator uh, <laughs> and <laughs> <Love> uh, <laughs> yeah no it's uh this sort of bright orange um amazing uh powder coated steel tool that will rip up uh, you know trees up to about an inch and a half or two inches in diameter uh, and it has just been such a, a lifesaver truly uh, for us in terms of just trying to get the backyard under control. Um, and that said, I could probably use the extractigator an hour a day for the year and we would still be overgrown, but it's getting us closer <laughs> to uh, <laughs> ensuring that our neighbors don't hate us completely. But so it <laughs> seems like it was good exercise. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to use. I, I showed it to a tree guy who came out to uh, remove a, a couple of, uh, dead apple trees. And he was skeptical. Um, he said, well, why don't you just mow them down? And that's one possibility, but I would rather rip them out and, and mm-hmm. be sure they don't come back. 
So the, yeah. the, the way the, this tool is very, is basically it's a long, long iron steel handle yep. that at the base of it has like a hammer a claw, yeah. like a little a claw that you find on like a hammer. And it works in the same way, like you're pulling nails. But with this long lever, you're actually yanking out things by the root. Yes. And that's where you kind of, you claw kind of under it to, to get at the base of well, the trunk. Well, actually, so the the hammer-like thing you're seeing uh, is an extra plate that you can add on for when the ground is soft. Uh, so it does help with the lever, uh, but it, it just grabs on like a vice. Uh, so you you stick the the offending tree uh, in between the vice grips and pull away. Uh, and using it, I can, you know, pull out. Uh, a pretty good sized tree about every 60 seconds. So uh, again, it makes like me feel a, pretty strong. A two That's inch cool. diameter. What, what, what we say? Uh, tree, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, one Sap to two ones. inches. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's actually used out here in California for invasive species like pampa grass, scotch broom, mm -hmm. which are otherwise um, sprayed um, to, to kill them. But um, this is a way to, to do it without spraying, although it is a lot more work. Um, and uh, this really the only alternative because just mowing things down, those yeah. don't really help. They just re-sprout very, very quickly. So you have to take them out by the root. No, and I, I'm not a huge fan of, of uh, herbicides uh, or pesticides, either one. Although, to be honest, we do have... Um, we do have some Japanese honeysuckle that uh, we are probably going to give up on and, and treat with an herbicide uh, just because it, <laughs> we could pull on that for the next decade. Uh, and I think we would still have some. Right. The thing here we, we spray the, the main and only thing we spray is poison Oak mm -hmm. simply because working with you don't it want is to pull it out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Right. It's a total disaster. <laughs> I am so sensitive to it that I don't even, if I just brush it, I I get it throughout my entire body. Oh so, my god! Yeah, that's not um, good. Yeah, so we we do spray the poison oak, and it's very effective, by the way. So that's good. Yeah, I every once in a while I spot poison ivy in the yard, and I run as far away from it as I can. I let someone else scary. take care of that. <laughs> so that stuff is so scary. Yeah. So yes. the um, extractigator is what's the cost? Uh, I think it was. Uh, I want to say it was around 200. Okay. Um, a little expensive, but not really. Um, right. For it's going to last forever. Yes. Yeah, it will last forever. <laughs> I, I, can't I can't imagine that I will ever break it. Uh, I yeah. can't imagine how I could break it. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's hefty. Um, yeah. The uh, And I think, I don't know if you can buy it by mail. That would be interesting. But um, uh, You can. Okay. You there can. You go. They will ship, and I, I think uh, it ships from Canada. Maybe mm, I might okay. be remembering wrong. Alrighty, um, Extractigator. <laughs> and it makes you sound cool when you say it, right? Yeah, it does. Yes. <laughs> Definitely, it's like a pro wrestling name or something. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, well, cool. So that's a good one. Um, for anyone who has lots of volunteer trees growing, or maybe even bamboo, the ah, extractigator. Yeah. So your next one is uh, something that uh, 
We are going to talk about comics a little bit. I'm so excited. Oxford yeah. Grid designed three by five index cards. Yeah. So, you know, I, I work uh, in a, in a discipline and a profession where I'm like overly connected, uh, like so many of the folks who are on the show and who listen to the show. Uh, but index cards uh, and using them is just a way for me to get offline uh, and sort of appreciate the, the, the tactile um, pleasures of doodling and taking notes. Um, mm-hmm. A few years ago, I've got a space in one of, in, in one of cartoonist Linda Berry's uh, workshops mm-hmm. and her mm-hmm. only requirements for things uh, to bring with us were some packs of index cards. Uh, and I think we had to have either three or five uh, paper mate flare pens uh, they had to be black and they had to be medium. Uh, and <laughs> I have continued with both of those. I hadn't used a flare pen in years before that. Uh, but there is something truly satisfying that the index cards are thick enough and substantial enough that the ink doesn't, um, uh, the ink doesn't show through. And I don't know whether she didn't specify the grid, but I think I have a leftover uh, love for grid paper from when I was a kid and I used to play at designing my own houses. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I like having the grid on one side for a little bit of uh, structured uh, doodling and and, uh, home design on the side. So this is like your your typical, stereotypical three by five index cards that has, instead of the ruled lines across, it's a grid like yep. graph paper. Yep. On the other side, it's probably blank. It is. It I love is. those. I didn't know that they made grid design index cards, but I could see lots of fun things that you could do with those. Yeah, you can get both the quarter inch, um, you know, square grids as well as a dot grid, um, mm-hmm. and the dot grids mm. are pretty fun too. But my and what do you use them for? What What do you do with them? I everything. If I could show you a picture of my desk right now, you would see that it is littered with um, index cards on which I have written, for instance, uh, my tools for the show today. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, sort of class attendance, uh, class rosters, discussion notes from class, doodles mm-hmm. for uh, that I've done in different uh, meetings. Uh, I took a uh, just recently took a class on making uh, haiku uh, comics uh, with the cartoonist David Lasky. Mm. And I use uh, index cards to sort of plan out my uh, comics um, for that class as well. So they they come in handy for lots of things. What's a haiku comic? Yeah. Uh, Well, I don't know that it has a formal definition, but the way that David uh, teaches it, it, it's just a, a haiku that we write and he you know, each week provides a, a different prompt and we think about uh, structure. Uh, but for a class, we were encouraged just to do three or four panels. So very short comics, very simple thinking about uh, how we use the comics form to uh, extend the, the ideas and the structure of haiku. Was it like seven, five, seven panels or I mean, uh, what was the haiku five, part? So it just like a, 
a traditional, the, the way you learned haiku in grade school or mm-hmm. high school. So five, seven, five syllables um, on a particular theme. Uh, but then you translated that into a, a three or four panel comic strip. Okay. So the idea is, is just that they were kind of brief and succinct, yes. maybe. And yes. Thank abbreviated. you. Okay. Um, I'm going to send you a, a book I did of uh, uh, called Bicycle Haiku, which was oh, I did cool. a haiku and a sketch um, every day for 90 days on my bicycle ride across America. And, that's really um, cool. That, that, yeah. that sounds very compatible with the, with yeah, the way yeah. David teaches the workshop. And um, so, uh, you know, haikus in English are kind of weird things because they don't yes. quite work the same as in Japanese. But there is this, there is something about trying to at least fit things into three lines that is, is a nice constraint. Absolutely. Um, and so um, you you got these uh, this idea of the grid cards, the three by five mm-hmm. index card, three by five index cards, and the flare pen from Linda Barry's um, yes. workshop, which I'm very envious of because I love her. <laughs> I love her book syllabus and yes. uh, it's it's it or whatever that is called. Um, they're, they're fabulous. What else did you learn from her workshop? Oh my gosh! I think you know there was something just about being in the room with her for a full day. Um, there were maybe thirty of us in attendance, uh, and just the the chance to sort of be part of her extended aura. Uh, mm-hmm. for a little while was was wonderful. But a lot of it was about, a, a lot of what she shared was about mindfulness and risk-taking and reflection. And I think um, it, we didn't do necessarily a lot of uh, drawing or cartooning. We did some, but it was um, very much about writing and about connecting with memory uh, and um, being open to uh, possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that and, is a large part of art. Yeah, and I, I would say if you ever have a chance to take a workshop with her, just just do it. Uh, I would like to go back. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, that sounds fabulous. amazing. Yeah, wow. and yeah. she brought, you know, she she was very generous with her time. She was very warm. Uh, spent a lot of time talking individually with people and uh, just encouraged everyone, regardless of where we were coming from, what skill level we were coming in with or what our goals were. Uh, It was a, it was a nice mix of people. And there were some professional cartoonists there um, along with, you know, just kind of everyday folks like me. That sounds so cool. And how was it like an all day? It was, it was, I, I drove for that one. I drove up to uh, Southern Wisconsin uh, to do that only a couple of hours from here. Uh, But, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I suspect she might do workshops elsewhere, uh, especially after, yeah, especially after COVID is gone (laughs) or lessened. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Wow, yeah, that's the kind of thing you you would have to jump on because I imagine it'll just like sell out immediately. Yeah, I think I think it does. Um, I I don't know quite how I lucked in timing wise for the the one I attended, but I was really mm-hmm. glad to be there. Cool. Um, that sounds so, really good. So, Carol, t- tell us about um, what you're working on now, and um, if there's some place that 
that people should um, go to to hear more about what you're up to? <laughs> well, I have this long-term project that may never end, uh, and that's okay. <laughs> um, but my the, the core focus for the research work I do is looking at the the ways in which uh, young people, um, you know, ages three through uh, 18, 19, 20, uh, sort of did things with comics uh, in the mid 20th century. And not just, I mean, part of it was just reading, of course, uh, reading comic books and comic strips. But this was also a an era where uh, a lot of the uh, early fan cultures uh, had their start. Uh, and uh, a lot of young people were sort of developing their skills as cartoonists and sort of building networks of uh, cartooning peers through contests and different comic books and other kinds of magazines. Uh, and they were also using or working with and through comics to uh, do a variety of sort of civic uh, types of projects, uh, whether it was something more simple like uh, selling comics to raise money for uh, a polio charity or to uh, make comics scrapbooks for soldiers uh, who were uh, away uh, during World War II, uh, but also the kids who sort of stepped up and uh, spoke out about the adults who were trying to censor and uh, legislate the sales uh, of comics during that time period. Uh, so, so it's, it's, it's like really, the seduction of the innocent era. Absolutely, yeah, and and it really was. Uh, so the the work I did, um, uh, gosh, it's been almost a decade ago now. On Frederick Wortham, who was the author of Seduction of the Innocent, um, that really is what turned me on to. Uh, shift from thinking about uh, comics from the the perspective of adults uh, to thinking about what comics meant from the perspective of young readers. Because when I was going through uh, his archival materials, Wortham's archival materials at the Library of Congress, uh, I was really amazed at the numbers of letters that young people sent him in the 40s and 50s, uh, sort of giving him their take on uh, what it meant to, to read comics and, and how comics mattered to them. Uh, and uh, there were small things too, just even within the various um, reports of conversations he had therapeutically with uh, uh, comics readers, uh, just seeing what comics meant to them and what they what they added uh, to their lives and to their experiences and understanding of, of what it meant to uh, to be alive, to be human. Uh, well, that's and, funny. Yeah, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and mm -hmm. uh, we, were, we were prohibited from having comics or reading comics. <laughs> And, and and so there Probably was Probably because kid. of Frederick Wortham. Yeah, exactly. And there yeah. was a kid in our neighborhood who who wasn't, who had comics, and we would go under his porch. We had a secret <laughs> place 
to read like Batman. I mean, this is like the comics we were reading. We were reading right. Batman and Superman in the Flash comics under the porch, illicitly, as if it was, you know, a crime. <laughs> and um, that's what my association with comic books was. Reading under the porch? <laughs> yeah. That's the only place yeah. I ever saw them. Right. And and for some kids in the, you know, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, that, that was the case, too. I, comics reading during that period was largely much more normalized, because if you look at the the statistical data from that period, it was, you know, 95, 96% of elementary school-aged kids, for instance, who were reading comic books and comic strips, not just, you know, every once in a while, but for many of them, it was... Uh, every day and sometimes for hours a day. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a, a, a very different time. Yeah, because we didn't really have TV. See, that was the thing. Right, right. We didn't have TV. We couldn't afford movies. I mean, we went to movie like, I don't know, maybe mm -hmm. a couple times a year. So that was the only, other than reading Hardy Boys, mm -hmm. um, uh, reading books, that was sort of like the most cinematic or graphic or visual yeah. entertainment that we had. Yeah. You know, the the thing, too, is, you know, it was the comic books and the comic strips, but a lot of the kids, too, as you mentioned, it, in in a pre-TV era, um, some of the kids were listening to the radio shows that were based on comics, and some of them were going to the movies and seeing the film serials that were based on comics. Um, some of them were, you know, playing with the toys that had their branded comics uh, characters uh, tied to them. Uh, but I mean, I, the sort of the everyday interactions, uh, I find really interesting, but it's also the kids who were really inspired and found their voices and sort of stood up and, you know, did cool stuff either to preserve their access to comics or to find ways of making, uh, their spot of the world a little bit better through comics. Uh, I mean, those are the stories that I really find meaningful. And you were mentioning that you were working on, this is a project. So what is the project? Uh, well, hopefully it will be a book <laughs> um, okay. that uh, when it, when it's all done, there are so many stories I want to tell so many stories. I continue to hear one of the pockets of, of archival treasures I found have been uh, letters, many of them from teenagers um, that were written to the, people to the, the men on the U.S. Senate Judiciary Subcommittee that uh, investigated comics in the early 1950s. And I've been able to track down some of these uh, once young letter writers and talk to them about what motivated them to write those mm. letters and about what their comics reading experiences mm. uh, were like. Have you thought about making it into a graphic novel? Well, I have, but I think I, I, I would need a collaborator. I, well, I can truly say my cartooning skills are not there yet. But there would be a lot of people, I think, who would jump at that chance. Yes, I, I think you're probably right. Maybe it can be an adaptation of, of another project. Or, well, you or know, a, there's, there's, there's so many really hugely talented cartoonists and graphic people around the world Absolutely. Uh, to choose from who are sharing their work, and you could very easily find someone, I think, to to match that um, that project, and it would be really cool to have it come out as a graphic novel. Yeah. No, that's a good idea. Did you do 
much research into uh you know kind of like the dark side of all this the the brooklyn thrill killers and uh, joe schuster's uh uh what was his series oh the, the, Nights the bond- of horror or something yeah the bondage comics yeah that he did i have done some reading uh mm-hmm. and i've i've read parts of what's in wortham's uh archival materials that uh, are around the Brooklyn thrill killers. And, you know, there's just so much fascinating stuff. I don't know. I could, I, if I had, if I really had my, uh, way, I would probably spend most of my time researching and, and probably very little time talking about all of this cool stuff. I just get (laughs) so sucked into, to, to reading through the archival records and the newspaper accounts that, mm-hmm. um, then yeah. I, I sort of lose steam when the writing comes around. Yeah. yeah. When I was a kid and at the, like, I was probably like 11 or 12, I found seduction of the innocent at, uh, the Boulder public library mm-hmm. and was just fascinated by it. And I think maybe you later exposed that a lot of that research was yes. bogus, but then I found a book that was also at the Boulder Public Library, a very thin book by Wortham done maybe in the 70s called Fanzines. It yes. was almost like his Mia Culpa or something. It was like not kind of like a non-judgmental, almost loving look at at science fiction and comic book fanzines produced in the 50s and 60s. You know, a lot of people take it as as his apology to all of the all of the uh, ill will he um, engendered through seduction of the innocent. And I don't think, I don't really think of it as an apology or a mea culpa because he, he still didn't like comics. Um, Mm -hmm. Even when he wrote that, I think he just, he got to the point where he thought um, or, or could see that people who read this stuff could do something that he found productive or useful or uh, Mm pro-social with it, you know, and, and all of those, all of that correspondence he had with fanzine creators uh, Mm -hmm. in writing that book, that too is at the library of Congress. uh, And I have read through it and it's, some of it is really funny. I mean, there, there are these letters that he would send out with a quarter or 50 cents or however much the fanzine cost, Mm -hmm. he would send it out to, uh, these uh, teens to make an order and they would write back and they would send his money back and say, we're not sending you a copy. <laughs> 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 uh, but you know, there are some, there are some really cool, um, there are some really cool treasures in there, not just the letters, but uh, uh, some of the correspondence he had with sort of the, the pro-am uh, fanzine editors during that period uh, the letters he wrote, trying to explain himself, um, all of that's part of the record. Oh, man, that would be fascinating. Yeah, well, I'm yeah. so glad you're doing that research, and I can't wait until um, <laughs> yeah. you, can, you can share I'll, I'll try, it. I'll try to write. <laughs> yeah. I'll try to write faster. Um, yeah, definitely. Or do a, do, a, do a YouTube version or something. Yeah, um, you know, I've, I, I've done a lot of talks uh, over the last – decade or so and some of them have wound their ways onto youtube so you can hear me talk about different parts of this project including there was a talk i gave a few years ago at the national archives and um 
I think it's that talk is still available uh, on YouTube. If you're curious, oh, good. if you, if you have a link for that, we can, we can include that. Great. Yeah, and I was going to, I was going to tell you uh, both. I have a, a reprint. I have an, a, I have a first edition of seduction of the innocent, but I have a reprint uh, copy as well. And uh, after the, the research I did on Wortham sort of made the rounds and all of a sudden people who didn't know who I was, did know who I was. Um, I started taking my reproduction with me to uh, comic cons and it's turned into this lovely autograph book. Various comic book. Yeah. People. Just let me tell you that I have lots of different great cartoonist autographs in there. That's and I don't know why I can't. And- yeah, no, I just tell them, I hand them the book and I, I ask them, will you deface my copy of Seduction of the Innocent? <laughs> and awesome. everyone is so excited to do it. Um, you know, it's like, I can, they're like, can I do anything? Can I do you write anywhere? Wow. And some people have, um, you know, there's some great stuff in there. Uh, Durf Backdurf, um, who uh, did My Friend Dahmer and the more recent yeah. State comic. Uh, did a lovely drawing, you know, Trina Robbins, um, who is a longtime uh, comics historian yeah, uh, and creator. Amazing. Yeah, no, she has written some fun stuff in the book, but it's just this uh, really wonderful memento for me at this point. Um, oh, Carol, you know what I would love is do a Kickstarter and, and pr- publish a facsimile <laughs> of it. Maybe I will. That Maybe would be I the will. coolest thing <laughs> in the world. I would buy one at any price. Right. Or, or also, right. even to make it more valuable, uh, send it around to all the people who haven't signed it yet. And then yeah, right. just right. fill it. Yeah. Right, right, everyone. Right. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Have them join you and say, you know, we'll get all the, the high profile ones and then we'll have the Kickstarter. And that would be really cool. You know, and, and that's the thing that I have missed about. Uh, the COVID lockdown is is getting out to uh, comics events like that and, and meeting people. And so yeah. it's been a while since I've gotten to add any uh, signatures or other defacement. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really great. We, um, again, we'll put whatever links we can sure. in the show notes. If you have a, a link to the um, your talk, that would be wonderful yeah. as well. I can and send that Anywhere along. else that people can... Um, contact you or follow you um i think you have a twitter account yes and your website well thank you carol really of course it. no this has been fun thank you for asking me back mark yeah of course carol thank you so much it's been a pleasure talking to you again and likewise and, uh, so many good tools Hey, everybody, it's your co-host mark and i wanted to let you know that we have a lot more going on here in cool tools than just this podcast We have our flagship website where we review a new tool every day. That's at cool-tools.org. We also have four different newsletters. We have this podcast. We have a YouTube channel where we review tools. And if you like what you hear and see and read, the best way to help us out is by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash cooltools and donate at any level you wish. You can even contribute $1 a month, and, and that would mean a lot to us. The money that you give us will go towards paying for our transcribing costs, editing videos, and editing the podcast. It goes towards paying contributors who write the reviews for us. It goes towards our equipment costs, our hosting costs. 
and it supports our very small company of three people. This week, I wanted to give a shout out to some of our Patreon supporters who have been giving us at least $2 a month. And if you give us $2 a month, we'll give you a shout out online. And this week, I would like to thank Michael Sakochia, Molly Starr, M. Velderman, Opposable Thumbs, Pamela Cooley, Patrick Weyer, Paul Hosey, Randy Fisher, Stuart Burroughs Brand, Synaptic Sam, Therese Schwartz, Tom Hawkins, Tom Markham, What Bear, Javier Pangolin, David Lang, Eric Byers, Sean Hartley, Stephen Powell, Greg Lichtscheidt, John Hobson, Adam Bristol, Adam Naher, Anonymous, Bill Kempthorne, Bruce I. Niles, Chris Woodruff, C. Kolos, Daryl Flynn, Egg Fliegoff, Eric Hanschrau, Eric Hoover, Godfrey Saldana, Jay Skiles, John M. Larson, Jude Galligan, Kenneth Gilman, and Lucas Frank. Thank you very much for supporting the show, and we will see you next week.